Well, hello, folks. This is Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is June the 10th, 2021. This is episode 2890-2890 of the Survival Podcast. And it is an expert council Q&A, and we have a great lineup of experts today, including some we haven't heard from in a while, and one of our newest experts. Actually, both of our newest experts are on today. Tim the Toolman Cook has a grab bag for us of power tool and battery questions. Derek Bon Pietro has his story in prepping and how it pays off, and uh, learning along the way as he's gone. John Bush just knocks out a lightning round. Four of your crypto questions answered in one go. Amy Dingman, what age do we should we start really homeschooling? And you know, at like if you got you know, do you start at two or three? Should you do preschool? Do you start at five? How do you handle that as a homeschooler? Sean Mills, starting small with your first solar system, and what is an independence fund? And what do you do with it from Nicole Sauce? Apparently, I created this thing, and she's right in her segment. I don't remember saying it. I remember thinking it. I don't remember saying this, but, yeah, this is really cool. So I'm glad I got people like Nicole to go, hey, that's cool what he said. Maybe I should say it again so that more people know about it. And then I have a quote of the day for you from John Adams. I'm one of our founders, second president of the United States. Facts are stubborn things. Many people are familiar with that quote, but in general, people don't know the whole quote. I'm going to give you the entire quote from John Adams, and then I'm going to talk about how it kind of stands in the face of what's going on right now with, dun-dun-dun, things we're learning about COVID-19 and the treatment thereof. And our old friend, hydroxychloroquine. Back in the limelight, and it turns out the orange man, the Cheeto dictator, was right yet again. Huh. Well, we'll talk about all of that when we get to it. I want to go ahead and get us straight off into things today with Tim the Toolman Cook with a grab bag of power tool and battery questions. Hey guys, Toolman Tim here from ToolmanTim.co, where we build business, create community, find freedom, and share success. Back again to answer a grab bag of questions for the expert council. So let's dive right in. The first question is one that Jack asked me himself on MeWe, wondering what my thoughts were on the 20-volt DeWalt cordless trimmer. So I got this trimmer last summer and used it a ton. It has all the power you could want and has a high and low setting, which is actually more useful than I thought. I just used the low setting in and around houses, which means it's less likely to throw debris, less likely to cut into vinyl siding. It's compact, it folds down to almost half its size, it's brushless, and decent on battery life. I can trim 5 to 6 average yards with a 5 amp hour battery. Now my biggest complaint last summer was the head design. It consistently fed string and the bump knob wore out too quickly to be practical for a landscaping business. So I eventually just used it around my own yard. However, this spring I tore it apart and replaced it with a quick load still trimmer head. It's durable easy to load, and takes the thicker string at 
It was the upgrade that was needed. It has become my go-to trimmer for doing residential work. It eliminated the only negative I had with this trimmer. With a factory head, it's great for someone just doing a town lot once a week. But if you're looking for something, something that'll do a ton of trimming, you may look at upgrading the head or even go with its bigger brother, uh, the 60-volt trimmer. I heard from BBQ Homesteader on MeWe, and he has been really happy with that model so far. So the second question is regarding the new 20-volt DeWalt mower and my thoughts on that. Dan from MeWe is looking at picking one up and thought I could share what my early thoughts were with it. So I paid $578 Canadian for this beast, which on the surface might seem a little high for a 21-inch push mower. However, this includes two 20-volt 10 amp hour batteries. That's right. 10 amp hour batteries that come with it to get the same capacity buying just the batteries here up north of the border. <laughs> I'd have to buy four or five amp hour batteries at around 300 bucks. So that makes the mower a much better price option when you figure that in. Plus the 10 amp hour batteries that come with it are great. They have become the battery I use on my grinder as I've been doing a lot of brickwork lately and refinishing an old fuel storage tank. So the mower itself it has tons of power. It auto-senses how much power is needed to get through the thicker types of grass to save on battery power. It pushes easier and feels lighter than my 22-inch push Toro gas mower. It's a three-in-one where it discharges mulches or bags, which is what I need in my business. It folds up or down completely flat and is made to store up on its end, perpendicular to the ground, to stay out of the way, something completely impossible with a gas-powered mower. It has a metal body on par with other comparable push mowers its size, and the runtime is much better than expected. It's advertised at 75 minutes of mowing, which is actually a lot of mowing. Now, last week, in the real world, my son and I did 11 residential lawns. He used the gas mower, I used the battery, so I basically did half of each of the lawns, and I never ran out of juice on those two 10-amp-hour batteries. I tried to start and stop a uh, stopwatch app on my phone, but I forgot to turn it off around the 50-minute mark. So I know I got at least 50 minutes of runtime, and I still had some juice left in the batteries when we finished the uh, 11 lawns. So my two small complaints with it so far are it doesn't seem to quite pick up into the bag as well as the gas mower. But I'm thinking I'm going to be able to figure that out as I go. It's probably more of a user error thing. And the electronic cable that goes up from the handle switch down to the uh, the battery motor, basically, is if you aren't careful, when you fold the handle down, it can be pinched. It does have a special plastic coating on it, but just be careful. And I also heard from someone else on social media that they bent the factory blade that they got with it in the first week. So keep an eye on that and maybe upgrade to a heavier-duty aftermarket blade. Now, the final question, and this comes from S. Miller on MeWe as well, regarding Eneloop rechargeable batteries and the differences between the regular capacity and the higher capacity pro black branded Eneloops. And the regular capacity ones are the white ones that you're probably used to seeing more. Eneloops have been the rechargeable battery of choice for people in the preparedness community, for a lot of people actually in the preparedness community. And I switched over to them the better part of two years ago. I standardized all my battery gear into AA and AAA batteries and got enough of the standard Eneloop batteries to run all of my gadgets couple of quick pro tips. I keep a notepad file on my phone of where I installed all of my Eneloop batteries so I can keep track of them and find them when I need them. That way they don't walk off and disappear. And tip number two, I keep a bunch of Dollar Tree Sunbeam batteries on hand and now some Costco branded Kirkland batteries. When my adult kids invariably show up and say, hey dad, you got any batteries? 
I give them these cheapos so that I don't lose my $3 plus per battery Eneloops. <laughs> but I digress. Let's get back to the differences between the white and the black Eneloops. So the white Eneloops have a capacity of around 2,000 milliamps. The black are just over 2,500. So that's a 25% increase in capacity. The amount of rechargers on, rechargers on the white are 2,000, while the black are around 500. So the standard can be recharged up to four times more. Storage life, the standard Eneloops will lose around 30% over a 10-year period, where the Black Pro will lose 15% in its first year. Cost-wise, on Amazon, a 16-pack of AA standards are 40 bucks. The same 16 in Pro are 65, so more than a 50% increase in price. So overall, if your only consideration is capacity, then the Pro is your choice, of course. But if it's affordability and longevity, it's the standard white Eneloops. Keep an eye out. I'll be doing some comparison videos, putting them through the paces down the road a bit. All right, that's it for me this week, guys. If you haven't, please take a minute and go by toolmantim.co and follow all my social media links there. I've got my uh, float profile, MeWe profile, Instagram, Mines, Odyssey, YouTube. And if you check out my video channels, you'll see uh, five videos a week there. And also, on Odyssey, I've been doing an audio-only exclusive where I combine all five or six videos every week so that you can just listen to them in case you have other things to do. And if you're looking for solutions to problems, whether it's tools, cleaners, or products, check out the Today's Tool section where I share my experience from the handyman business with products that have either saved me money or made me money over the years. Thanks again, guys. I always appreciate your support, and stay happy, stay healthy, and have a great week. And as Pearl usual, when uh, Tim has a list of items like that, I do have links to all of the stuff that he was talking about in the show notes. I do not have a link to the head that he replaced uh, on his DeWalt string trimmer. I'm going to email him and get that, because... I need it too. Now, we don't have a commercial use for our string trimmer. We bought one. When I asked him about it, we, I had already ordered it. I was just like, do you have one? You know, whatever. Like, it was just, he, he talked about something on me. And I'm like, what about the string trimmer? And it turned into this response, which is great. Our issue with the string trimmer head on that unit is not its feeding. It's putting new string in it. It is a pain in the ass. Fortunately for me, my wife loves the string trimmer. I mow and she string trims. So I haven't had to deal with it, but I have heard that she is not pleased with the pain in the ass of actually putting the string on the trimmer. What she told me is after like the third time, it's once you figured out, it's really not bad at all. It's just different. Uh, but being able to use a thicker, heavier string... And an easier to fill head. That sounds like a good thing. So I'm going to find out exactly what parts he used to do that with. Because it was one of my first thoughts when I saw how you string it was like, we can just replace that. Because the tool ain't the head. The tool is the machine. And you can have anything spin around. So I'm going to check into that myself there. So I'm glad that worked out. Uh, Derek Bonpietro, Don, bleh, sorry, Derek Bonpietro now with, um, his personal walk-in prepping and how it's paid off and where he's found holes in it, uh, going through, going back to like pre-COVID and going through the COVID pandemic and what have you. Happy Friday, TSP listeners. Derek here from AffordableDCGenerators.com. I am pulling an audible on this Friday segment. Normally we do the 
listeners' questions, but today I'm going to do more of a story time and kind of just do a quick recap on some recent events that have happened to me and those events that have really made me happy that I'm more prepared than I was, say, five to ten years ago. So let's roll. Now, I've been listening for about seven or eight years now, give or take. Before listening and having Jack kick my butt in every regard, I was kind of a fairly responsible adult. You know, I was always took care of myself. I had money in the bank. I always know how to fix stuff, so I was never hard up like when my car broke. I was a crafty young guy, but I was definitely not as well prepared back then than I am now. A couple of the areas that I was really lacking in, one of them was food storage. So I basically had whatever was in the fridge and the pantry, and that was it. Now, my girlfriend and I, we live in an apartment in town. We're not like huge congested area, but we're in a small New England town, and the property is about the size of a postage stamp. There's barely enough room to park both of our vehicles, let alone have a garden or any kind of livestock or even any kind of outdoor storage, which really affects me. Now, I've got a big storage unit where I keep my trucks and all my work tools and things like that, but realistically, I've got no outdoor space. I can't exactly grow food or have any kind of things growing out of the ground that I can eat. I have to basically rely on what I can store. We're talking just maybe two or three weeks before the whole COVID thing really took place. What was that, February of last year? So a couple weeks before we really started to see the effects in the grocery store, my girlfriend and I, as all of this is ramping up, basically looked at each other and said, we need to go grocery shopping and we really need to start upping our game in the food prep department. So we started to spend some extra money and not necessarily copy can, but just buy big chunks. We go out, spend an extra 50 to 100 bucks and really just start getting some supplies. So after maybe three or four trips to the grocery store, we had a little bit of extra inventory, which got us going. But of course, as COVID was ramping up, we just kept adding to it. So maybe, maybe there's like a seven or eight storage totes, big storage totes, Plenty of toilet paper, didn't see that one coming, but dry goods, canned goods, all that stuff is in storage totes out of the way that we can pick from and just keep rotating through. So as we need like, you know, soup, sauce, whatever that is, we just pick from the tote and then just buy more and even extra, still some extra, and just replenish it. We've also got another step forward and have a pair of chest freezers. They're not the giant ones, but they're big enough for an apartment. And sure, it costs a couple hundred bucks for the freezers and it definitely costs a few hundred bucks to fill them. But realistically, I could probably lock my door and sit tight for two to three months. Three months, maybe pushing it. I'd be losing a couple of pounds, but we wouldn't be hard up for anything at that point. And I tell you, that security feels really good. Maybe a year ago, there was no security. (laughs) We would have been eating the family dog at that point. So sure, it's in a couple of extra bucks each time you go grocery shopping, but I feel a lot better. And sure, I can't grow my own food and have that recurring supply just being replenished all the time. But if something that does bad... If something bad happens and the grocery store is completely empty, I'm not frantic at all. We just happen to look at each other at the same exact time and go, we need to definitely secure this area in our lives, no doubt. So lucky for us, we happened to up our food prep game just a few weeks before COVID, and we're just keeping it going. We're looking at another freezer and maybe getting a half a pig or a whole pig or something like that. So that's an area that's improved and is continuously improving. Now, fast forward. Another year, recently we just went on vacation, went to a small island off the coast of Puerto Rico called Vieques. It's like 4 by 20, that's miles, not kilometers. So pretty small, two gas stations, two whole gas stations on the entire island. And two days prior to us leaving, one gas station was going to redo all their pumps. No signage, no warnings, nothing. Drove past it one day, piece of heavy equipment's ripping the pumps out. Oh boy. Of course, in typical third world fashion, 
the other gas station then ran out of fuel, probably because their business doubled, and there was no gasoline to be found anywhere. So there I am driving my Tourista golf cart, wondering, am I going to have to pay the company 10 bucks a gallon because I'm going to return it with a half tank? Very, very unprepared, as there is a line of cars at that single gas station that's left waiting for the fuel truck to come in. Little did we know that a couple weeks later on the East Coast, you would be seeing similar things with all the Karens filling up their grocery bags full of gasoline. Pretty funny. So I got a week's vacation. I asked my girlfriend to marry me. And bonus, she said yes. So I was just as high on life as could be. Came back from vacation rested. One of the most important days of my life. Go to pick my work van up from the local Chevrolet dealership because it was dropped off there for the week getting some repair work done. Monday morning, go out to my truck. Where are all my tools? Long story short... Technician was done with the van on Friday, parked it outside, left the doors unlocked. Scumbag criminal stole a U-Haul up the road, went right to the dealership, opened my van, took all my tools. My employer, who showed zero concern, actually might have showed negative concern, basically said, when you get your tool situation sorted out, come back to work. So Monday morning, after my week vacation of getting engaged, I get to write a $1,500 check to the Home Depot to buy all my tools back. I couldn't go back to work, couldn't fix generators, couldn't get a paycheck, had to get tools in my truck. Sure, it's not my fault. Luckily, the dealership paid the bill one week later, so I had an insurance check. No big deal. But what if I didn't have 1500 bucks? What if I worked for an employer that if I told them I didn't have the money, they weren't going to front the money? I would have been SOL. So long story short, having some money in the bank for those emergencies that pop up certainly paid off. I mean, sure. I have $1,500. That's no big deal. But what happens if you're starting out and maybe you only have 50 bucks? Being financially prepared certainly paid dividends in that situation, especially after having such a great time coming to that explosion of a disaster. It's really great to just cut a check, move on with your life, and sort things out later. So story number two, I was well prepared for. Story number one, not so much. Story number three, fuel shortage. We really didn't get too many disruptions here in New England area. Gas definitely went up in price, but you could still get it. I could still go to work. I could still do my personal things. But just like the food issue, I am definitely lacking in the fuel storage department. I have a work van, which has 20-something gallons on board. I've got a five-gallon gas can in the back of the truck. I use that for working on portables and refueling small equipment and stuff. But I always keep that can full just in case. I have my spare Suburban in storage. That's got a 40-gallon tank that's always filled. So I've got plenty of stuff that I can siphon from if I need fuel, but I've got no surplus. So I think the recent fuel shortage issues that happened or are happening now is definitely kicking me in the butt. I need to figure something out. This reverts back to the whole living in an apartment conversation. I've got nowhere to put it. So I've got to figure out something, whether that's an outdoor storage locker, you know, one of those Rubbermaid <clears throat> lockable totes. Sure, I can go out and write checks and have as many gas cans as I want, but I don't feel really comfortable putting them in my storage unit. It is a workspace. I'm grinding and welding, and sure, it's probably not a huge hazard, but I really don't feel comfortable putting all of that fuel in that storage unit. So I think I'll probably go down the route of storing it outside. Lock and key, can't be seen, and it's secure. Sure, I might not be able to get 12 cans in there, which is ideal, but maybe two, three, or four, better than nothing. That's really just for transportation. I have two sp uh, propane cylinders in storage that are there. Each of them is probably twice the size of a bar barbecue tank. And that's really just for cooking. So we've got like a, those camping cooktops with all the adapters and stuff. So there's some cooking fuel there. And then I've also got a diesel cuck fee. So that's always got 20 gallons on board. And then our house has a 250-gallon home heating oil tank. I can always siphon fuel out of there as well. So diesel transportation, not a problem. 
But that's not ideal. I don't want to have to rely on the vehicle. We're going to definitely secure our fuel situation shortly here. Thanks, guys, for letting me be Mr. Rogers for this Friday. If you have any questions regarding vehicles, generators, anything with an engine or burns fuel, send it to Jack. He'll get it over to me. We'll get you an answer. Take care, guys. Next up, for your crypto enlightenment, John Bush has a lightning round here for you with four of your crypto questions. I'm really glad we added John for this subject. The day and the days after I did it, I was like overwhelmed with questions. I'm like, you don't have to do them all at once, man, but if you want to combine some of the short ones, you can, because he's got a buttload of questions for him. I do want to remind you, though, you can also answer your questions about things like CBD, cannabis, and Kratom, uh, and you can, of course, learn more about his work with those things at mybravebotanicals.com. John, take it away. What's up, TSP community? John Bush here to answer some questions about cryptocurrency as part of the Expert Council. I have four questions to go through, so I'm going to try to make them as fast as possible, but still make it understandable and comprehensible. The first question is from Squirrel. It is, what is Ethereum 2? About a month ago, Coinbase started listing Ethereum and Ethereum 2. What's the difference? Well, Ethereum 2 is an upgrade to Ethereum. It's also known as Ethereum 2.0. The big change that they are creating, there's a few different changes, but the biggest one is going from a proof-of-work cryptocurrency to a proof-of-stake cryptocurrency. This is referring to the consensus mechanism and the methodology that the cryptocurrency uses for transaction validation. In other words, how a cryptocurrency ensures that the transactions taking place are legitimate, how new coins are created, and who is rewarded with those new coins. Proof of work means you have to prove that your computer or your system has done computational work. That's what Bitcoin is. takes a lot of energy, as we heard from Elon Musk, who crashed the market recently. Proof of stake essentially is you put up your coins, you stake them, you kind of freeze them or lock them, you earn coins in exchange for doing that, and whoever has the most coins is most likely to earn the right to add the next block to the blockchain and solve the transactions that just took place for that block. That's essentially what Ethereum 2.0 is. It's a separate chain right now, but they're developing the technology to merge those two chains. So soon enough, the Ethereum transactions and blockchain history will be merged with Ethereum 2.0. Another upgrade they're doing is called Shards. Yes, they called it Shards. If you think like I do, that's funny. Uh, Shard is essentially like side chains. So there'll be multiple different chains that all work together in this Ethereum ecosystem to increase the volume throughput of transactions so as to dramatically lower the transaction fees. We can expect to see some pretty substantial gains with Ethereum when this all rolls out. Vitalik Buterin says that it should be serviceable by the end of the year on an optimistic time chart or by early 2022. So that answers that question. The next question is, can you further explain how to use stable coins like Tether or USD? This person attended the Demystifying Crypto Workshop. They said they watched it since and learned a ton. Thank you. I assume stable coins are a good place to park some crypto when Bitcoin or altcoins make some major gains and we want to secure profits to potentially take as cash or to store until a future dip comes along. Is this assumption correct? Are there other uses for stable coins? Yes, the assumption is correct. A stable coin essentially is a cryptocurrency that's pegged to the U.S. dollar. So we have Tether, which is the biggest one. There's also USD coin and a couple of others, but those are the big ones. They serve the purpose of making it easy, easier for you to go in and out of different cryptocurrencies without having to always convert back to fiat. 
right? Now, mind you, the tax man still thinks it's a taxable event if you go from one crypto to another crypto. So we don't have a benefit there. Uh, but a great benefit is if you're timing the market, let's say you're monitoring support and resistance lines or you have some technical analysis indicators and you have reason to believe that cryptocurrency is priced high and that maybe it's due for a correction, like when the price was above 60000 for example, you can take your Bitcoin above 60000 convert it, sell it for Tether or U.S. dollar coin, and then you can hold on to that stable coin until the price goes down. You can then get back into Bitcoin or another cryptocurrency, thus increasing your position. Another really cool thing that stablecoins can do has to do with this decentralized finance phenomenon we see coming into play. This is something we went over on day two of the cryptocurrency workshop I recently did. You can get access to over 17 hours of content at CryptoAndPrivacy.com, CryptoAndPrivacy.com. There's now smart contracts that enable you there's also centralized institutions, but now there's decentralized trustless contracts with a cryptocurrency that enable you to take a crypto like Ethereum or Bitcoin or others, provide it to a smart contract as collateral, and in turn, you receive the stable coin equivalent of the value of that cryptocurrency. So you collateralize your coin. Sometimes they want you to uh, over collateralize it. So like 125% of the money that you want to get out or 150%. You then put that coin up, you lock it into a smart contract and you're given the equivalent in a stable coin, which you can then use to benefit your life. So let's say you're having a kid and you want to add another room for a nursery onto your home. Well, the traditional way to do that is to go get a loan from a bank, right? And they're going to charge you interest two, three, 4%. You got to put a significant amount down if it's a construction loan. Well, now the game is totally changed. Let's say you've been saving cryptocurrency. A lot of people before, they would have to cash out their cryptocurrency, which is not ideal. Now you can take a Bitcoin, for example. You can lock in that cryptocurrency as collateral, receive the equivalent amount in stable coins, take the stable coins, convert them for fiat, and pay your contractor without even having to deal with a bank whatsoever. Then once you pay back the stable coins to the contract, you then get access to your cryptocurrency again. Absolutely phenomenal. The banks are either going to have to evolve or die on this one. This is a game changer. Again, you can learn all about that. Uh, the Crypto and Privacy Workshop, CryptoAndPrivacy.com. Another person, Noah from the Upper Rockies, is asking, is there currently a user-friendly option for face-to-face -face crypto payments that has the potential to work like Venmo or Cash App? They're asking because they often do Craigslist and Facebook Marketplace, and they want to be able to do that for cryptocurrency. Well, any wallet, I would recommend non-custodial wallet, like Coinomi is my favorite. In fact, you can go to setupacryptowallet.com, setupacryptowallet.com, where I put together a free mini course. I'll take you through four simple steps to set up the wallet, secure it, learn how to use it. And you can use Coinomi. It's a multi-wallet. It services multiple different cryptocurrencies. Jack likes Jax. Jax is also a great, reputable, simple-to-use wallet. Then you just... Download the wallet, have it on your smartphone, go to a public place, ideally a Starbucks or a bank parking lot. There's always cameras at a bank and you just click receive on your wallet, open up your wallet, choose the cryptocurrency you want to use. Be mindful of Bitcoin because the transaction fees are still pretty high. Let's say you want to use Bitcoin Cash, Dash or Litecoin and you just click receive. You click on the cryptocurrency you want to use, you click receive. It generates a receiving address, a public address. You can even put the dollar amount 
And then the person that's purchasing it from you, they pull out their wallet, they click send, they scan the QR code that was created, this little black and white little boxes, which is a digital visual representation of your public address. If you put the dollar amount, it'll go ahead and pop up the appropriate dollar and crypto amount in their wallet. If not, they can put it in on their end. So they click send, they scan your wallet, they put the amount, they send it to you. One thing to consider with Bitcoin and Bitcoin Cash, for example, they have approximately 10-minute confirmation time. So if it's a savvy user using some rare wallets, they could potentially do a double spend where they send you the first amount, then they immediately send the same amount again, but they put a higher transaction fee. So the higher transaction fee transaction gets it covers up the first transaction. This is rare. It can happen. Some people know how to do it. But if you really want to be safe or if it's a large transaction, then you can wait for the first confirmation, which usually takes around 10 minutes. There's other coins like Dash or Litecoin that have a smaller confirmation time, something to consider. But yeah, essentially Coinomi is what I recommend. You can go to setupacryptowallet.com, setupacryptowallet.com, and you can just use any traditional wallet for sure. Okay, the last question is from uh, JT Cool Dude. I recently purchased some light cash coins and they're currently in a custodial account. I'm having trouble finding a non-custodial wallet to move the coins to. Any suggestions? By the way, awesome workshop. Looking forward to more of them. Thanks for all you do. So I'm not super familiar with light cash. I've heard it mentioned before, but I did go to coingecko.com, my favorite site to look at all these different coins. And from there, I clicked through to their website. Okay, so you go to coingecko.com, you pop in Lightcash, you can go to their website. This is a great way to make sure you go to the actual website instead of a fake website where you download a fake wallet and then send crypto to it and they have the private keys. So they have a Windows, Android, and Linux wallet. So I would just download the Android one or the Windows or whatever type of computer you have. This is going to be a non-custodial wallet. Now, I will say from coingecko.com, I learned that the market cap rank of this coin is 1,809 which means it's kind of a more of an obscure coin, right? This has benefit. It only has a million dollar market cap, so it's easy to 10X a million dollar market cap, much easier than 10Xing a $10 billion market cap, for example. But that being said, it's a little bit more obscure. It may not have an, a, a really sophisticated development team. So just be aware when you're messing with their wallets, make sure you truly understand them because there could be some quirks and some bugs. It's a little bit more risky to deal with these lower market cap coins. I say lower market cap. Market cap is the number of coins times the value of each coin. That gets you your market cap. In the cryptocurrency world, we measure cryptocurrencies against one another, not by dealing with the individual crypto price, because some cryptos have 210 billion coins. Some cryptos like Bitcoin have 21 million, for example. But we measure it against the market cap, which demonstrates the overall dollar amount, the uh, overall financial value of a cryptocurrency. So this one's way down on the list. So just be aware, it is bigger risk, but with big risk, Sometimes comes potential reward. Sometimes it doesn't. I just want to throw that little tidbit out there. Okay, this is John Bush, your cryptocurrency expert. I can also talk entrepreneurship, marketing, natural health products like Kratom, CBD, Delta 8, THC. Appreciate Jack Spirico giving me the opportunity to talk to you guys. If you want to learn a whole lot of information about cryptocurrency, I invite you to check out the workshop I did myself along with two other teachers. We delivered over 17 hours worth of content. You can gain access to the recording at cryptoandprivacy.com. That's cryptoandprivacy.com. Peace and freedom. Y'all stay free. Thanks.
Next up, if you are parents and you've got young children and you think, hey, you know what? I'm not going to send those kids to the government indoctrination center. But let's say they're young yet. They're like toddlers, you know. When do you actually start homeschool or home-based education? And uh, do you follow the state's model? Do you just focus on learning? This is, to me, a pretty simple thing, but I know that there's so many people that want to homeschool, and it just seems daunting and overwhelming. To help you work through it, Amy Dingman from A Farmish Kind of Life. Hey, TSPers, this is Amy Dingman from the Farmish Kind of Life podcast and website here to answer a question about homeschooling. This question comes from Matthew, and he asks... How soon should I begin planning and prepping to homeschool my daughter? Details. My daughter is 17 months old already, which prompted a discussion about homeschooling and preschooling. My wife is nervous about homeschooling, especially as she would be the primary point person in the process. When should we start looking into options and begin preparing for a formal education of some sort? Thanks, Matthew. So Matthew, it's great that this is on your radar and that you're starting to look into it. There's a lot to learn about homeschooling because there are so many different ways to do it. So to answer your question, I've got a few suggestions and a couple cautions. So we started digging into homeschooling when our oldest was two, two and a half. I had a cousin who was homeschooling her girls, which prompted me to look into it. We didn't really make the decision to officially homeschool our oldest till he was about four, and we didn't even have to report him to the school district until he was seven. So it was kind of a big stretch of time there between when we started looking into it and when we started officially doing it. So some suggestions I have for you as you navigate looking into options and preparing for this adventure. Number one, you mentioned your wife is nervous about this. I would have a discussion about that. I would ask your wife, what's making her nervous? Is it that she doesn't feel capable or qualified? Is it that she is afraid she won't have any time to herself? Is she concerned about what other people will think? Does she feel like she's going to mess everything up? Have a conversation about that so you know how to dig into those things. Number two, have a good discussion about what you're both thinking when it comes to homeschooling. What are you wanting from the experience? What are you not wanting? And really dig into what your why is. Why do you want to do this homeschooling thing and see where you both are on that path and see if it's lining up. Number three, I would start looking online, and you've probably already done this, but start looking online and really digging into homeschooling and unschooling resources. When I was starting to research this, gosh, 16 years ago, there was some stuff, but not like there is now. So dig around, make connections, look into what interests you, use the internet to your advantage. Number four, I would research locally for any homeschooling groups and organizations. You may find there is a local group or organization that's having workshops, especially for people who are considering homeschooling in the future. We found one of those when our kids were very little, and it was very helpful to us. So that was great. You can also check out conventions or conferences in your area, co-ops, playgroups. There are some things that you can join in on when you feel that you want to jump into that. What you will find is that most homeschooling families are really happy to talk and share information. And that's great for you because it's great to hear different theories and methods and other people's experiences with the whole homeschool adventure. But here's what I'm going to caution you about. Be aware that if you show up to a homeschool event as the parent of a 17-month-old to start talking about homeschooling, 
a lot of homeschoolers are going to look at you and tell you to slow down. So you need to be aware of your approach to this. And I bring this up because I remember being at a homeschool conference once I was speaking at this conference, and I ended up talking to a gal who was really exuberant about homeschooling her daughter, who I found out was only six months old. And this mom was at this conference and she was buying all the curriculum and she was sitting in all the different workshops and she was just all into it with a six month old. Now there are a lot of people who say they don't need the chains and the control and the time frames of public school and yet they rush right into figuring out how to set up their formal homeschool when their kid can't even walk yet. Now there's a fine line between being excited and planning for your child's educational path, which is great and there's nothing wrong with that. But there's another side of that line, which is being so caught up in how you're going to teach them to read that you miss out experiencing life with them right now. Now, having said that, I have to point this out because every homeschooler will tell you this. Your kids are learning from you right now. They're always learning from you. They've learned from you since they were born. They will learn from you after they graduate, regardless of whether you choose public or private or homeschool for their education. So I'm going to make this a little less complicated. Making the decision to homeschool is really about where they're going to get those reading and history and science and math lessons from and how they're going to get them. The decision about what formal lessons are going to be and when you're going to start those is really a discussion between your wife and you. Nobody else can decide that for you. Don't feel like you need to start preschool lessons with your kid at three years old just because everyone else is sending their kid to preschool at three years old. On the other hand, Little kids are like little sponges and they will soak up whatever you give them, whether that's something that looks formal or something that looks less so. And remember, nobody's got a camera in your house. So the way that you decide to approach homeschooling, whether you start that today or you wait till your kids are seven, nobody's got a camera in your house. Your in-laws might bug you about you're doing too much or you're not doing enough, but really it's your house and what goes on educationally with your kids, that's your deal. So it's up to you. There's sitting your kid down at a table and learning the alphabet, and then there's curling up together on the couch and reading a million books together. Both will eventually get you to the same place. It's just all how you want to go about it. And that's the really cool thing about homeschooling. You get to decide how and when it happens. So don't let that whole, when should we start and how do we do this? Don't let that stress you out. It's up to you. So I hope I answered your question, Matthew. If you've got any other thoughts about this, you can find my contact information on my website, afarmishkindoflife.com. I should also point out here that I wrote a book about homeschooling about 10 years ago called The Homeschool Highway, How to Navigate Your Way Without Getting Car Sick. And you can also find that on my website, afarmishkindoflife.com. Thanks for the question and have a great day. I'll just throw out one more time for those of you that have apprehension about can you do this, that... You know, I, I love that some people basically roll their own curriculum. I love some people do unschooling and what have you. Dorothy and I felt to be able to handle this, especially as grandparents, you know, rather than parents, because we have a different level of control, right, that we needed some structure. And when we found Excellus Academy, and that came to us from our, or the people that prior held this expert counsel uh, position here at the show, Mike and Sue LaFreeze, they're like, well, we're not using it, but you, for what you're looking for, this might be right. It was perfect. And the fact that it keeps track and uh, keeps a grade system, basically, it, it generates a transcript. It's basically a private school online. That's really what it is. It is a private school headquartered in California, 
fully accredited. And for those of you that have apprehension, there's, there's a couple things that I think this really will help with as far as the apprehension. Number one being that since it gives you a framework within which to work, it, it, it takes away a lot of anxiety from a standpoint of, am I getting all the things that we need to get you know, to the child to the child? That, that's great. Two, regardless of how many times you tell people, being homeschooled is not going to prevent your child from getting into college. No matter how many times you tell them that, they're still worried about it. When you use Excellus, when you're done at the end, it spits out a high school transcript, and it looks like any other high school transcript. You're not making your own transcript, whatever. It doesn't have any of that stigma. It is an accredited school. Uh, also, it was founded by a guy that invented the hydrogen car, the first home personal computer and gigabit Ethernet. And when anybody says anything about, like, well, you know, do you think that's good enough? Like, did your the person who who runs your school does your does your school superintendent did he invent gigabit Ethernet or the hydrogen car or the personal computer? No, okay, shut up. Um, it is a fantastic program. I'm not saying everybody should use it. What I'm saying is, if you're struggling for how am I going to get this done, look at it. Uh, I believe it's. $250 a month per student, but if you make the kid watch one video a week, and it's a pretty cool, very educational video that will work for young kids and old kids alike, um, and they make a comment on it, you qualify for the Roger Billing Scholarship, and it's 80 bucks a month. And, and I've, I've had people, I've kind of talked about this in one of my Miyagi mornings this week, where people say they're broke and they don't have any money, and they're drinking you know, a $5 latte every day. That's $25 a month. That's $100, or $25 a week is $100 a month in lattes alone. And you could invest that in your kid and make your coffee at home. Just saying. There's a lot of ways to skin that. And you can use all the materials from Excellus for free. You just don't get the support and all of the tracking and the teachers and the interaction and, and what have you. That's what you're actually paying for. So anyway, that's my little two bits on there. Uh, you know, I do not get any money from Excellus or anything like that. We're not affiliated with them other than our grandson uh, uses their program, and our granddaughter will start using their program this fall. Uh, next up, we have a question on getting started with solar and doing it more on a small scale on your own rather than, you know, paying some company a lease to have a bunch of them on your roof that aren't even going to a battery and you don't even have power when the power's out and what have you. At least, you know, getting your feet wet with it. And we haven't heard from uh, Sean Mills in a while, but here he is. Hey, guys, it's Sean Mills with AcMySolar.com, and I've got another expert panel question to answer. Uh, so this is from David. David says, what is the best option for getting your feet wet into solar? My wife and I would like to get some resiliency with solar on our power needs. We have looked into, into installing a grid-tied system, but do not want to have a loan on our home, and when the power is out, the solar doesn't work without a battery backup system. I was thinking of building a Stephen Harris battery bank that could be charged with solar and grid power, and uh, I'm sorry, that had the flexibility of being expanded when the funds are available. I live in central Florida and have a three-story home with a metal roof that is 12-12 or a 45-degree angle pitch. Hey, David, um, look, the uh, Steve Harris battery bank system would definitely be an option. Um, I, I would say you should start looking into the lithium iron phosphate batteries, um, but for just toe dipping, um, the flooded lead acid are perfectly fine. Uh, if I were you, and I lived where you lived, um, I would drive down to South Florida, where there are several places to get pallets of solar panels available 
for 50 cents per watt, some places well under 50 cents per watt. Once you've got your pallet, you put them on sale. If you don't have a truck, get get a friend with a truck or rent one for the weekend. You can put a full pallet in the bed of a truck, got to hand unload it, but uh, it's not hard. Um, once you get them home, put them on Craigslist and Facebook Marketplace. You should be able to sell them for at least a 50% profit. Um, you sell half the pallet that pays for the other half or more. I do know people who have flipped pallets for 300% profit by breaking them down and selling them into one, two, or three at a time. Um, you get a deal if you go down there and all they have to do is take a pallet with a forklift, set it in the back of your truck, and you drive off. Okay. Um, when you turn around and sell them one, two, or three at a time to people in your local area, uh, it costs more per panel because they can't get them any other way. If they don't want to go down and buy the entire pallet, they want to buy them a few at a time, that's what it costs. Um, but like I said, no people who have flipped pallets, full pallets for 300% profit by selling them one or two at a time. Uh, now with the other half of the pallet, now that you've funded uh, your project, or at least paid for the panels, which are the, the most expensive part, um, at least half if you're not going to go a full battery bank on this deal. Um, assuming the panels are at least 300 watts, you should have about 5,000 kilowatt hours a year of solar sitting in, in that uh, half a pallet. June's going to be the only month that you're going to come in less than 400 kilowatts in a single month. Uh, so you're talking about 10 plus kilowatt hours per day throughout the entire year at a minimum. Um, now, does that mean you're going to get 10 every day? Absolutely not. It means you're going to average greater than 10 over the course of a year. Uh, now, why June being bad? Well, in Florida, obviously, you got your midday rain or at least rain clouds. And 45-degree roof pitch is not optimal. It's very suboptimal um, for uh, an area in the tropics. You, you want, in your area, you want your solar panels in the summer sitting close to flat um, but 45 degree, that's going to hurt you. But if that's what you've got, that's what you've got. The good news is panels are cheap, so you can put, keep putting them on till you're out of roof. Uh, now, as a toe dipper, you probably will not even want the full 5,000 kilowatt hours a year. You're probably going to want to start with like a three-panel system, a small MPPT charge controller, and a few golf cart batteries. You pair those with a 3,000-watt inverter, and now you have enough juice to run any appliance in your house that has a 120-volt plug. I'm not saying you can run everything, but you can run anything. Um, at this point, play around with the kilowatt meter. See what you want to run on the inverter all the time. What things you want to run on the inverter sometimes. Or things you might want to run on the inverter only during the middle of the day when the sun's out. You know, one neat idea would be to run a crock pot or a sous vide to cook some food from home to come home to. Right? So you get ready to go to work. You hook your sous vide up to your inverter and throw your meat in there, throw some steaks in there, or throw a crock pot, just pour everything into the pot like some holler stew like Nicole does, get that thing going, come home, dinner's ready. Maybe hook a dehydrator to it, make some jerky while you're at work, or some yogurt. Uh, I know a guy who's using his excess seller generation to mine crypto in Central Florida. So there's lots of options, you know, get your feet wet, get started, get a few panels. Like I said, where you are, the bang for the buck is go go down to South Florida, get a pallet, bring it back, sell half of it or more if you want to, or less if you want to. Uh, but you can definitely sell them for a lot cheaper or a lot more per panel than you can buy them for. Um, 
If you would like to hire me to design this whole system, including some use cases for you, you can send me an email at hackmyseller at gmail.com. Otherwise, guys, keep the questions coming in, and I'll keep answering them. Thanks. Next up, something I, I apparently created, and I just don't remember doing. I said I remember thinking this way, but I don't remember discussing this, but it's called an independence fund. And apparently Nicole Sauce has been talking about it on her podcast. So we have a question about it here. Nicole, what the hell did I say and what did it turn into? Happened and I had to do work. I thought an independence fund was an awesome idea, but I missed what you used the money for. Thanks, Mike. Well, Mike, this is something that is a bastardization or a development or a build upon of an idea that Jack Spearco mentioned once in one of his podcasts years ago. In passing, I'm not even sure he remembers doing it. And he was talking about building your freedom fund. Your freedom fund is money you have not had to earn because you have the skill to do something and therefore you don't have to pay the person to do it. An example of that would be if you had a clogged drain under your sink and you knew how to remove the P-trap, clean it out, put it back together. You just did not play, pay a plumber anywhere from 60 to 150 bucks, depending where you're at, to come out to your house and clear that clog. In order to pay somebody 80 to 150 bucks, you have to earn about 30% more, right? Sometimes more, depending on your tax bracket. And that meant that you not only added $80 to your independence fund, it might have been like $105 or something, depending on what the price range of that was. And I thought, well, that's brilliant because that gives you a tool to evaluate if it's worth your time to learn a skill or if it's better to pay a guy. And it's a good idea to evaluate anytime we spend U.S. dollars on something, we're not spending a dollar. We're spending like a dollar forty because we had to earn a dollar forty to get the dollar that we're spending on whatever it is, and it changes your mindset about the value of your time. At the time that he mentioned that in passing, I was at a point in my personal journey where one of my three strategic life focuses was a financial one, and there's always a financial piece for me. And it was to become more or less dependent on non-local sources of revenue. So to be, to have more stable sources of revenue. And because I made some very bad decisions when I was younger to get rid of debt. And that meant push down on the household budget in smart ways and leave myself enough time to get revenue. So I needed to compare ROI on my time versus paying somebody to just get something done so that I was free to focus on important things like growing my podcast, growing my coffee business, growing my consulting business. And so I really glommed on to this freedom fund concept, but for me, it fit under what I called in our household Operation Independence. Yes, Operation Independence is where we focus on both the revenue side and the reduction side. And about that time, a breaker broke in my pump house. And it was going to cost me about 180 bucks to pay the person to drive all the way to my house to change out the breaker. And guess what, guys? I know how to change out a breaker. So I went to the electrical parts store, got the right breaker, came into my well house, changed out the breaker, had somebody standing there with a big old two by four to whack me with if for some reason I'd done it horribly wrong, which really wouldn't have happened. But, you know, you do what you need to do to feel safe. 
turned on the breaker after switching it out, turned on power to the pump house from another part on the property, and bam, I had saved $180 in labor. I had spent $20 on a part. I added $160 to the independence fund. I looked at my partner at the time, and I said, I just put $180 in the independence fund, and it started a gamification of reducing costs for stuff for us. And I called it the independence fund. I just put it in there. It's money we never had to earn. And that means that that money didn't have to be earned at a higher amount, one piece. Two, that freed up something that would have come out of the emergency fund to pay for a repair to be spent long-term on debt payoff. So you're asking me what to spend the independence fund on And the way I decide how to spend money that I have that is extra is I do it within the context of my life strategic plan. I have a vision statement for where I want to be or how I want my life to be rather in the long term. And that's what I've been working towards for the last 14 years. Underneath that, I have three areas of focus that I work on. And then underneath of those, I have three, up to three goals for each one to help me get there step by step. I call that method my three things because the human brain can only manage about three things. So when I'm looking at extra money that isn't related to my savings goals, it's not interest, it's not related to debt payoff. And I only have $4,200 left, by the way. That's a big win for me. You guys have no idea how much debt I had at the beginning of this all. And that's not related to something in the future or something right now, I then look at the goals and decide where I'm going to spend the money, whether it's for recreation or for something moving forward. But the independence fund itself was the gamification of incorporating smart ways to reduce expenditures, not just reduce expenditures for the sake of that. Because you can spend four hours on the phone with Verizon, getting your phone bill down another $2 a month. And that's a huge waste of time. You've paid yourself pennies an hour for that. You need to look at how these reductions in expenditures work in the long term. For me, since I already knew some basic wiring things, that electric breaker made sense to save the $180. For you, that might not be the case because you may not have had to learn that for a different reason, it might be better to pay that $180 and spend the the hours you would have spent learning how to do that, focusing on, you know, selling more widgets or building the website for your side hustle or getting out there and doing Uber Eats or something of that nature. That's why I call it the Independence Fund, because it is generic and customizable to each person. Of course, if you want to know more about that, start listening to my podcast, livingfreeintennessee.com. And if you love great coffee and want to help me on my journey, get your coffee at Holler Roast. There's a discount in the membership program. So if you support Jack, you can save money on that coffee. And it's always worth it to support Jack. Thanks for the question, Mike. And keep those questions coming, guys. I can answer questions on fun things like home food preservation, that sort of thing, cooking, entrepreneurship, website questions, marketing, all sorts of stuff. And it also includes coffee. Who knew? And remember that tagline I say at the end of each of those, which is make it a great week. You know why I say that? Because it's up to you to do it. Make it a great week. All right, guys. So, uh, and I want to wrap things up. And like I said, I'm going to start out with a quote of the day. 
Uh, this was by John Adams. And I think most people that didn't live their whole life under a rock have probably heard the simple uh, one-liner on this quote, facts are stubborn things. It's often misattributed to uh, Ben Franklin. Of course, Franklin and Adams were friends, then enemies, then frenemies, then friends again. Um, both died uh, on the same day, hours apart on the 4th of July, by the way. That's an interesting little thing there. I've also heard this attributed to Ronald Reagan. I'm sure he probably said it in a speech or something like that, but it, it goes back to John Adams. Um, but the entire quote was, Facts are stubborn things, and whatever may be our wishes, our inclinations, or the dictates of our passion, They cannot alter the state of facts and evidence. Wow. Boy. Um, Adams was far from perfect. If you've ever watched the miniseries, I think it was HBO or Showtime miniseries, John Adams, uh, it's, it's fascinating. The first two episodes are probably the best. The rest of it, though, really shows a lot of his failings as a politician, <laughs> as a man, etc., um, as a father even. And um, I like that because it was honest. But the first two episodes, man, I, I, I feel like if you're going to be in the Congress, um, they should have to be like strapped in a chair and forced to watch those first two episodes um, every year, once a year. At the beginning of the year, they should have to watch it with their eyes held open if necessary so that they pay attention to it. And at least that way, when they're shitting on the Constitution and wiping their ass with it, they know what they're doing. They know what they're destroying. Um, it was fascinating. But this quote to me is very relevant today. And what I want to talk about is there's a new study out that, surprise, surprise, showed that hydroxychloroquine improved the results in extremely sick COVID patients in hospitals by 200%, 200% better outcomes. And in this case, it was actually given with zinc at more or less the right time. It still wasn't even perfect, in my opinion, um, at the right dosages with um, zithromycin. So it was, th th this is for those that don't know what the hell happened here. Hydroxychloroquine had a long history of being seen as a remedy for this type of illness because of how it works. And the real short version is. If you, if you give a person hydroxychloroquine in combination with zinc, it acts as what's known as an ionophore, and it gets the zinc inside the human cell. And once you put zinc inside a human cell, there's a lot of things that it actually does to, to, to help out with as far as illnesses and diseases, different versions thereof. But... Any mRNA virus will either not be able to replicate or be severely impaired in its ability to continue to replicate once zinc is in the cell. And this is scientific knowledge. We've always known this. Uh, well, I'd say always known this. We've known this for a long time. And what happened is all of the supposed trials that proved it didn't work, when you look at them with knowledge of the dosage, And what we, we started out with what's called, you know, in science you start out with a thing called a hypothesis, right? 
And the Zelenko protocol, uh, Dr. Zelenko was the guy that started treating his patients with this very early on, like in February. He was already treating patients with this protocol, and he was having very, very good results with very high-risk patients. And his hypothesis, based because it was what he was, his protocol was, so clearly it was the hypothesis you're working from, hydroxychloroquine with significant amounts of zinc, 400 milligrams or 400 yeah 400 milligrams of hydroxychloroquine on day one as a loading dose, then 200 milligrams a day for four days full stop, 250 milligrams of zinc and a, a full Z pack, which is a full course of the zithromycin uh, antibiotic, which was not for the COVID but for uh, secondary bacterial infections. That was the protocol. So of course you know our idiots that that were running these trials were doing things like giving like 1,200 milligrams of hydroxychloroquine for 10 days, which is a freaking toxic dose. Okay, right. So you're the, the the what was tested wasn't the hypothesis of the individual that said, "Hey, look, this is working." And other doctors that were using this, some were public about it, some were private about it because it was being attacked, were doing the same thing. So. When you run a trial, you're running an experiment. And I know this is hard for modern scientists to understand because they don't actually understand that science is a process. They think science is an authority. And scientists, scientists are people that tell other people what to think. And then you just think. And if you, if you attack the idea, you're attacking the person. That's what Fauci's saying right now. If you're attacking me, you're attacking science itself. No, really. No, really. He really just said that yesterday. And he talked about himself in third person when he did it. He, if you're attacking Dr. Anthony Fauci, you're attacking science itself. No, no, dude, you're not science. You are a doctor. You're not even a scientist. You're, you're a shitty doctor at that. You're a freaking bureaucrat. And we've known this works. And now we have highly conclusive proof that it does work. And there are many other trials that were run in other parts of the world where they weren't purposely trying to sabotage it that have shown us this. And even this was not done the way it, surely, it really should be done. The way that this protocol is supposed to be used, and again, this is the original hypothesis that was never tested, even now has yet to be tested. You have a high-risk patient. They have type 2 diabetes, they're extremely overweight, they're elderly, whatever. The second you diagnose them with COVID, the second you do it, you start the protocol. That's the hypothesis. Still hasn't been tested. Because these people were very sick and in the hospital and still had an improvement in outcome by 200%. Again, 200%. Facts are stubborn things. Here's another quote. Richard Feynman. I would rather have questions that can't be answered than answers that can't be questioned. And the reason I'm giving you that quote is it's on a post that I did. A post that I did on July 31st, 2020, so almost a year ago now. This is what the title of the post was. And I want to read the post to you. I want to remind you of it if you were here for it and inform you of it if you weren't, if you weren't a listener yet. An open challenge should debate any scientist or doctor on the merits of HCQ for the treatment and prevention of COVID. And this is me speaking here. I wrote this word for word. I'm going to read it. The open challenge. I have been trying to do this since March, and I have ramped it up hard in the last week. I have no takers on this issue. I'm open to other points of debate, but specifically, here are nine points of debate I want to have with any professional about hydroxychloroquine, hereafter referred to as HCQ in this article, as it relates to COVID and the prevention and treatment thereof. 
Point one, HCQ is safe, and the claim that it should only be used in a hospital is a blatant lie. Point two, HCQ is a zinc ionophore, which means it gets zinc inside of human cells, and this is known science. Point three, zinc in the human cell disrupts viral replication of mRNA replicating viruses, and this is also known science. Point four, no RCT, that's a random controlled trial, has included zinc as of 731.20. This is when they were conclusively telling you it didn't work, by the way. All negative RCTs overdosed patients and did not include zinc. Most were in late stages of the illness when the lungs were already severely damaged. Six, There are multiple positive studies that counter the negative studies. Point seven, the existing studies are so flawed that it at least appears intentional, overdosing late-stage use and the omission of a critical component of care. Point eight, there is ample evidence to support the use of HCQ for treatment of COVID and its prevention. And nine, doctors should not be banned from prescribing HCQ for any use they feel would be of benefit to the patient. The options... On full disclosure, I am not a degree-holding professional. I admit this freely, and my position is that as such, if I am wrong, I should lose this debate and do so badly. However, so far, every medical and scientific professional who has said I am wrong has also refused to debate me. I'll say, since I have no credentials, there is no point. Given I speak to and am trusted by about a quarter million people daily, I find this to amount to ad hominem and a denial of reality. However, this is not about me. This is about the truth, and I feel public and open, honest debate is important to science and medicine. Hence, any professional who is unwilling to debate my nine points only due to my lack of credentials is offered two options. One, use your superior knowledge to debate me anyway. This should make your job easy. Two, I will find you a PhD or MD to take my place in the debate. The format, I am not talking about a sharding match. I am not talking about a comment argument. I am talking about a well-ordered professional debate. An organized debate with a mutually agreed upon independent moderator conducted in an on-live live video format. The terms will be agreed upon in advance, the subject, time limits, response time, etc. The debate will be 100% professional and with courtesy extended on both sides at all times. Again, if my lack of credentials is an obstacle for you, I agree to simply facilitate this debate by finding you a professional with credentials to do this myself, either choice, a proposed advantage. If you should choose to debate me, I will agree to the following. If you wish, I will limit myself to only one page of pre-planned notes, one side, One sheet of paper. I will take notes during the debate, as is customary, but will rely on only one side of one sheet of paper for prepared notes. My opponent is permitted to have as many notes as he or she wishes to. They may even look up data online during the debate and may have up to two assistants while engaged in the debate. I, however, will stand alone. Additionally, beyond the allotted time, I agree to give my opponent 30 additional minutes of time to be invoked at any time other than to interrupt my time. This time may be used in increments as, as little as one minute throughout the debate. Additionally, the primary positions I'm taking can be heard in two videos, one here and the other here with links, giving you a chance to know the majority of my positions before you even engage in the debate. Should you wish to debate a Debate a professional of my choosing instead of myself, I do not offer these contingencies. I will not put another person at such a disadvantage. I can only speak for myself on these contingencies. 
I don't know of any other professional debate on this, any professional debate on this subject at this level where one party has offered so much of an advantage to the other side. Also, if you feel these contingencies are not necessary, you have the option to debate me without them. Basically, I will engage in this fight with one hand tied behind my back if that's what it takes to get someone, anyone, to step up and professionally defend these positions while being challenged on the facts. It is that important to me. Why am I doing this? This is not a publicity stunt. This is not about me. I feel claims uh, being made that are blatantly false. I feel claims are being made that are blatantly false, such as the claim the drug that a drug used in millions of doses annually suddenly now needs to be used only in a hospital. This does not track logically. I find the shouting down of people challenging this to be a dangerous precedent to set in modern science and medicine. It invokes images of the dark ages. I feel no scientist or doctor confident in their position should be afraid to debate it publicly, professionally, and rigorously. I have witnessed experts on both sides of this debate on television, but I have yet to see any two such experts in anything approaching a professional debate on the facts. I have searched far and wide. I can't find a single debate on this issue that was done in anything approaching a professional manner. I find this odd and frightening. Healthy, rigorous debate is the foundation of science and medicine. You can't resolve an issue of this magnitude that is this politically charged with TV talking heads. Professionals on either side should not be permitted to make unchallenged claims on something this important. Since the media refuses to have professionals conduct this debate, I offer to either do it or facilitate it. What the reader should ask at this point are two options. One, why does a podcaster have to do this in the first place? Two, why won't a single professional making these claims publicly defend their position with the ability for it to be challenged by someone with a command of facts to counter their position? All right, it continues from there. I'm not going to read any more of it. You can read it if you want to. It's linked. You can see the date on it. Again, July 31st, 2020. Friends and neighbors, do you know exactly how many people even considered taking up this challenge? Even contacted me and said, I think I'll do it. Zero. None. I'm going to just ask you, what do you think would have happened if I put out a similarly toned letter saying that mixed martial arts was more fake than WWE wrestling, and I could prove it, and I will take on any MMA fighter, and he could have two additional fighters in the ring with him? Well, I would have had my ass kicked by the next Tuesday. That's what would have happened. Do you know why? Because the mixed martial arts fighter would be like, who is this jack-off that can't see out of one eye? And they would have just said, well, it, okay, I'll do it. And it wouldn't even have been like some top guy. It would have been like some dude from, like, you know, Sherman, Texas at, a, at an amateur MMA training gym that would have just beat the crap out of me. And I would have had it coming, right? Of course I would have had it coming. Of course, a guy that trains all the time, right? MMA's not fake, right? I would have got my ass beat. I would have got my ass beat, and I would have deserved it. If I was wrong about this, that's what should have happened. Some, some, some like, you know, even low-level PhD should have just said, I got this, but nobody did. Which tells you something. Which tells you something. Facts are stubborn things. Facts are stubborn things. All of these people that spouted, that were professionals, they knew better. They knew better. They all knew 
better. They all knew that it was a lie, and they did it anyway. If you parroted this and you knew better, you have blood on your hands. Anthony Fauci belongs in prison over this alone. In addition to things like lying about the lab leak theory. Because I want to point something out about Mr. Fraud Z, okay? With the lab leak theory. It's not just that he knew it was possible. It's what he said. He didn't just say, the best science says that this, this, this uh, virus is, was naturally occurring. That it, it didn't come from a lab. That, that he didn't say that. As pissed as I'd be, at least that would be somewhat a reasonable position to take. And it's just something you could be wrong about. No, no, no. Friends and neighbors. Last year, very early on into this, before there was any way there was enough time to state something this asinine, what Fraudzi said was, it is impossible. It is impossible that this was made in a lab. It is impossible. Facts are stubborn things. And the fact is, that's a lie. Because right now he says, well, you know, it's looking more likely that maybe it did come from a lab Oh, yeah, some of our money went there, but it wasn't for gain-of-function research. But didn't you support gain-of-function research? Yeah, but see, it's really important, but we weren't doing it there. We just gave them some money, and then this other money, and then this other... Facts are stubborn things, and whatever maybe our wishes, our inclinations, or the dictates of our passion, they cannot alter the state of facts and evidence. And I'll add one more quote for you today. Three things cannot be hidden for long. The sun, the moon... And the truth. The truth is coming out. The truth is that the drug companies, so-called scientists and bureaucrats, for political and monetary reasons, conspired to malign the safety of a drug that was in circulation and in use for over 70 years. They rigged trials to purposely poison patience. This is what happened. It is incontrovertible. You don't go giving an incredibly sick patient whose lungs are already hamburger meat, who's on a ventilator, a toxic dose of HCQ, and then say a normal therapeutic dose given to a patient in early stages won't work. You don't do that. You don't do that unless you do it intentionally or you have an IQ of three. And I'm sorry, no matter what, you don't complete a degree in medicine or a Ph.D. in scientific research with an IQ of three, even if you're a dickhead. You don't. So there is no way it was not done with malice and forethought and contempt for human life. Facts are stubborn things. These are the facts. So I got another fact for you guys out there that are still on the fence about this vaccine. That's not a vaccine. It's an experimental genetic therapy. It says so in Moderna's filing to the FTC. Somebody challenged me on it that day and said, it doesn't have anything to do with the vaccine. It doesn't. It has to do with the technology. The technology that was used to make the so-called vaccine. It's classified as an experimental gene therapy by the FDA until they changed the definition so they could call it a vaccine and protect Moderna and Pfizer at all under the Vaccine Protection Act. And so they could call it a vaccine. Because it's not a vaccine. 
and it has a lot of side effects, and we do not know what the long-term side effects will be to it, and you are highly, highly likely, even if you get COVID, to not have anything more than a damn bad cold. But over 4,000 people, according to the VAERS website, their own website, over 4,000 people have died after receiving these injections now. And the people telling you this, they're the ones that told you hydroxychloroquine works. They're the ones that told you ivermectin works. We have plenty of evidence to show that. And we're called and shouted down as conspiracy theorists that just wanted old people to die. We were the ones that told you that masking the masses didn't work. And we have conclusive proof in their own study that they say proves their side that it's bullshit masks do not work. When you look at the entirety of the United States, where masks were mandated and where they weren't, the variance is 0.7% based on masking. I'm going to say it one more time, 0.7%. That is in well within margin of errors of any controlled study. And then they lied and they told you that that showed absolutely mass work, 0.7%. All the media talking heads ran with it, and most people swallowed it down like sheep eating freaking range tubes. Gulp, 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 bah, moo, bah. In fact, it's moo. It's insulting the sheep to call the masses sheep at this point. Sheep are a hell of a lot smarter than cows. Moo. That's what you got, is moo. Human cattle. Human freaking cattle. Okay, guys. The people that told you all the things that much like the moon and the sun cannot be hidden for long, that have been vindicated over and over and over and over again, are the ones telling you, don't get this experimental vaccine. Especially, especially if you're in a low-risk group to begin with. And the people telling you that it's your absolute civic duty to, to do so, lied to you, then they 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 lied to you, and now they're still lying to you. Please ask yourself who you should trust. And please ask yourself. Please ask yourself. If he's just a stupid, redneck, hippie duck farmer that does not have the virtue of facts on his side, why did nobody take his challenge? Because I wrote that challenge in a very specific way. I wrote it in a way where there was no way to wiggle out of it other than to be a coward and know you couldn't defend your position. Because the only true objection people had was, but you're not a degreed professional. I'll get you one. Done. End of story. And no one did shit. And no one ever will do shit. And no one will ever step up and take that challenge. Got a 49-year-old guy that podcasts for a living, whose expertise are in technology and marketing, never cracked a medical book in his life, simply did the basic research that the Internet would allow, And you can't get somebody with 17 initials after name to defend an official position against them. While offered the ability to have assistance, be able to do research in real time, and be given additional time over my time, and they won't do it because they know they're wrong. That's the most important thing here, that you understand this, that they know what they've done. They killed people. And if you don't understand that, you do not understand how Bad things really are. They intentionally killed people. And I mean it two ways. Withholding treatment killed people, but overdosing patients in trials, giving the wrong protocol in trials, so that you can say you did a trial, you killed those people too. Actively and passively, they killed people. They're the same people 
that told you to shut up and you can't have hydroxychloroquine, the same governors that banned it, that said doctors in my state cannot prescribe a medication that's been prescribed for 70 years, are the ones that sent infected, known infected COVID patients into elder care facilities. They killed people. Please understand me. I'm going longer on this than I planned on. They killed people. One more time. They killed people on purpose. They knew what they were doing. They lied all the way to the freaking bank. And if that sounds extreme, we hear about people every day killed for a few hundred dollars. Killed during a robbery to take their cell phone, for God's sakes. You don't think somebody will use power of position to kill people for billions of dollars? What planet do you live on? And why do you even bother listening to a show like this? With that, let's go ahead and wrap things up. Let me remind you, if you do like this show and the work that we do, you can help support us simply by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com, T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. And um, today's item of the day is Sacred 7 Mushroom Extract Powder. I learned about this from Nurse Amy. She found it because she was highly concerned when COVID started up like we all were. And one of the biggest problems that people that are in risk groups have when they get COVID and when it does go bad is cytokine storm. So she started doing research on how to alleviate or reduce the potential for cytokine storm. And she found out that five specific mushrooms have been researched and shown to effectively do so uh, with cancer patients going through chemo. And if it reduces cytokine storm there, it probably would reduce cytokine storm anywhere. So she and Bones started taking it. She told me about it. I was like, yeah, it's cheap. I'll take it. But then I did the real research into, well, what are these? Why does this product, surely it doesn't exist for COVID. It, it, COVID just started, right? It's because these mushrooms have huge, massive amounts of anti-cancer research behind them. And this is, there's nothing in it. There's no fillers. It's seven mushrooms dehydrated and ground up into a fine powder. That's all it's in. That's all it is. Seven mushrooms ground into a fine powder. It costs... Um, an eight ounce bag is forty four ninety nine. Three hundred twenty two servings you get out of that. It's fourteen cents a day. For Dorothy and I, it's twenty eight cents a day. We throw in our coffee, we drink it, and I've had people ask like, why coffee? Because we drink coffee every morning, and it's hot, so it dissolves. And then I've said, well, does it taste like mushrooms? It doesn't taste like anything in a coffee. Coffee, tea, whatever. I, I've never tried it just in like hot water to see what flavor there is. But you use, I think it's a quarter teaspoon is what we, we have a little scoop inside it, so it's all ready to go. Uh, I think it's a quarter teaspoon. It's, I just don't think it's enough to have much of an impact on flavor. And my view is when I did the research into these seven mushrooms, and this is a massive amount of research, for 14 cents a day I can't afford not to take it because they might help. It might help prevent cancer or make cancer less uh, of a thing if you even get it, you know. We all could go through our whole lives and never get it. Many of us are going to have cancer at some point in our lives. Having this supportive ongoing therapy for like 14 cents. And remember, I'm not a doctor. I'm not making any health claims. I'm just saying there's a whole shitload of, you know, controlled studies that show anti-cancer properties in these seven mushrooms, and you can get it for 14 cents a dose. So you might want to consider using it. And remember, no matter what you buy, if you start your shopping at tspaz.com, you will help us out. <clears throat> no matter what you buy, you can also become a member of the MSB. I would really love it if you would do that because then I would know that not only are you supporting me, but I am selling you something that pays for itself. 
the member support brigade costs $50 a year. It's about 18 cents an episode of the show, if you want to look at it that way. Um, but everybody I know that actually uses the discounts is like, I totally get my money back, and I make money. Um, I've had people tell me they've, they've, they've profit anywhere between $200 to $1,000 a year. We have one discount, for instance, with ButcherBox. It's $10 a month. On a, so if you're a ButcherBox customer, there's $120 a year on a $50 product. That's one discount. So please consider becoming a member today if you've not already done so. Just go to the survivalpodcast.com. Click on Members to do that. And with that, let's wrap things up with our song of the day as we finish off Sammy Hagar Week. And today's song of the day is some somewhat early uh, song for Hagar uh, compared to what we've been playing you this week. Um, it's There's Only One Way to Rock. It was originally cut by Hagar uh, as a solo song in 1982. That's a while ago for some of us, isn't it? Um, of course, later, Hagar would take over as the lead singer, uh, replacing David Lee Roth for Van Halen. And the song was then re-released live in 1986 with Hagar and uh, Eddie Van Halen uh, sharing the lead guitar. And that's when the song really became popular. But uh, we've got the original version here uh, from 1982. Sammy Hagar, There's Only One Way to Rock. 